Hey, welcome to night school. Pulled an all-nighter last night. It's become a monthly thing for me. Despite not having done that since I was a kid. Since about October, I've pulled at least one a month. I don't like doing it, but it was one of those nights last night where I laid down and I said, I'm not going to sleep. You just know, I'm not going to be able to sleep. It's not even anxiety. It's not even any one particular thing. It's just... Your body just feels kind of lit up. It's almost like if you've ever taken any kind of stimulant that does that. Adderall or something. I mean, I wasn't wasn't on Adderall. I was not. But it's kind of like that where you're just like, even if you're not buzzing, you just have this feeling of like, I'm awake. And nothing is going to change that. And when I pull these all-nighters, that's usually what I feel. I just lay down and I'm like, oh yeah, I'm not going to sleep. Nothing about my body or mind feels like it's capable of doing that. And what I like about it, I really don't want to keep doing that. Even once a month feels like too much. But one thing I do like about it is I was able to do things today. I was able to function up to a certain point. But I don't think about anything. Like when I've done that, it's like all of my normal neurotic thoughts kind of go to the wayside. I did go through a bout where things felt like they were falling apart, so maybe I'm full of shit right here. There was about an hour this afternoon where it felt like everything was falling apart. But then I'm also not a napper, but when you pull all-nighters, you realize the true value of a nap. Because it got to be early evening, and I was just like, oh yeah, I'm not functioning. Anything I do is going to be useless. And so I, I just slept sitting up just slept on the couch sitting up and you realize the value of a nap where I think I slept for like three, three and a half hours, not enough to completely offset my sleep schedule. And I don't feel great right now, but it's amazing. Like you wake up and you're like, oh yeah, just three, three and a half hours after pulling an all nighter. It really does change everything. It really does turn you back into some, some kind of functional creature, human being, human creature. But anyway, uh, thinking a lot today about just collective psychosis and hysteria. And that's not new over the last couple of years. I started to see something happening around 2015, even before Trumpsfeld. As I've said before, you can't forget, you know, I talk a lot about people's brains resetting around 2016. And I I think that many people forget that the factors at play that created a presidency like Trumpsfeld were already building before he even announced that he was running for president. There was a certain momentum that I picked up on around that time. And so that was when I first started to notice it. And then, of course, the last two years, you know, I'm not going to downplay the last two years where we've seen that's just the that's the currency the currency is hysteria collective psychosis is simply an ever-present part of our reality you know we might have seen indications of it earlier and there's always some level of that but it's usually long form it's usually more sustained it's not sudden it's not in your face like when i think about growing up 
Like the idea of growing up living in a society under an American government where you just kind of take for granted that that's how it is. You take certain thi- you, you take certain aspects of life for granted. You treat them as normal. When they're really not normal at all. They're they're kind of arbitrary and they've been taught to you and reinforced. And a good example of that is just something like the pledge of allegiance because that was an early memory I have where I was like, "Oh yeah, this is very strange. This is some kind of delusion. This is some kind of collective psychosis. It's something you do every day. But it's utterly bizarre. Like I have early memories. I was probably in second grade. I was probably seven or eight years old. And every single morning, we would do the Pledge of Allegiance. We would all turn and face the flag, which was in the corner of the room. Held, It was up at the top of the corner. You know, in a flag holder. I guess you call that a flag holder. And they would recite the Pledge of Allegiance on the intercom. We would all say it in unison with our hands over our hearts. I mean, I know everybody listening knows what the Pledge of Allegiance is like, although there's there's some couple non-American listeners, so I don't know what they do there. But yeah, every single morning, five days a week, first thing we would do in the morning, you know, we would come into class, we would be in the same room all day, and within a few minutes of school starting, they would make the morning announcements, and they would have us all turn and face one corner of the room with our hand over our heart, and everybody would say the same words in unison. And even that young, even seven or eight years old, I have this memory of looking around the room and being like, this is fucking weird. This is truly strange that we're all doing this. And that we don't acknowledge how strange it is. Because when people do rituals later by choice, like people who are religious or spiritual, when it's something you decide to do later, part of the attraction is that it's kind of weird. Like when you meditate. If you're somebody who doesn't come from a background where that's normal at all, you know that even just sitting there with your eyes closed deliberately is something weird to do. And you're looking for results or a state of mind that kind of transcends what you would consider normal reality. So you're aware of the weirdness when you do that, even if your motivation isn't weird. Even if your motivation is just to feel more stable, even if there's some practical motivation, you know what you're doing is different. But something like the Pledge of Allegiance, which is very ritualistic too, very few people sit and say, oh, hey, this is very strange. They don't get outside of their own head. It's simply something you do. And I've talked about that time in high school where I didn't stand for the Pledge of Allegiance. It wasn't the only time I did that, but there was just one particular time where I didn't stand for the Pledge of Allegiance at an assembly, and my teacher said, you need to stand. She was just this weird little woman, too. It's not like she was the gym teacher. It's not like she was a a military veteran. She was just this weird little lady who taught English. I don't know if she was married, but she was kind of eccentric. She's like, you need to stand. I said, I'm not going to stand. This is after 9-11 too, which was a form of very sudden. That was an early memory I have of a sudden collective psychosis was the response to 
But what I'm talking about here are these more like long form sustained psychoses. But yeah, the teacher was like, you need to stand. And I just said, I'm not going to stand. I didn't make a big deal out of it. But, you know, and part of my motivation probably was just being a rebellious teenager, just kind of being a punk. But the main motivation was just the realization I'm, I'm getting too old for this. I'm too old to do this in earnest. I'm too old to get up and, you know, stand up and face a cor- uh, the same corner of the room as everybody else and chant the same words without feeling very disturbed by it. And I, I refused to stand and my teacher said, okay, just sit there and be weird. And I thought about that and I was like, is what I'm doing weird? By sitting here and not standing for the Pledge of Allegiance, is that weird? Because the reason I'm doing that is because doing it seems weird. Maybe I'm being weird, as in I'm doing what you're not supposed to do and that's different. But the reason I'm doing that is because doing it feels weird. So that always stood out to me, should just sit there and be weird. And I mentioned before on here, you know, I have my own sense of patriotism. I am proud of certain uniquely American qualities. It doesn't mean that I'm proud of everything America is and everything it stands for. I'm not. But I am proud of certain qualities that the American identity has. Certain things that have come as a result of that certain developments in culture, certain ideas that we have. I have pride in that. I have a certain level of patriotism. But it's not something that's automatic. And I can appreciate that just by living my life. There's no need for me to ritualize it. And I probably wouldn't have a problem standing for the Pledge of Allegiance today. It's been a long time since I've been in a situation where that's demanded of me, maybe at a sports game, but it's even been some years since I've been to one. But I mean, that is a form of collective psychosis, but it's something you do every day. It's not something that just happens one day. I didn't come to school one day and they said, today we're all going to stand and face that corner with our hand over our heart and we're going to say these words. It seemed normal to everybody because we always did it. And the values that went along with that seemed normal. I mean, I think about an experience in seventh grade where I was in gym class. And me and this guy, we went to the mall together once. It's so funny how that works. You know, kids will just hang out with each other once and stay friendly. There's no problem. But it's like you're testing each other out as friends. That happened a lot at a young age where like someone will invite you to their birthday. Like I think about some birthday parties I went to in elementary school or kids came to my birthday party and you never went to the birthday party again. You know, you you didn't stay good friends. You didn't stay friends at all. Not because there was any issue, not because you didn't like them, but it was just, I'm I'm testing this out. I'm seeing if, if this, if this is a person that I gravitate toward, your parents might arrange it. But I remember that happening when when I got a little bit older and had more autonomy. Like in high school, getting into drugs and partying and that kind of thing, you would hang out with people for that reason who you might not otherwise hang out with. But junior high is kind of funny because 
you're old enough to be somewhat autonomous. Like you can go with a group of people to a mall and you don't need to be chaperoned or supervised. You might need to arrange a ride. But there was one time where these two kids, I, I think I just had gym class with them. They had gone to a different elementary school, so I didn't really know them and they didn't really know me. But one day I was just at home, I think it was a Saturday, and I got a call and it was like, hey, this is Evan and Chris. And I was like, hey, guys. You've never called me before. <laughs> this is the first time we've ever talked outside of school. But they were like, hey, we're going to go to the mall today. Do you want to go? And I asked my sister to drive me over to their house. And one of their parents took us to the mall. And we, we walked around. I bought a t-shirt. I still remember the exact t-shirt I bought. We had a great time. You know, we had a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that day at the mall with Evan and Chris. And Chris died of brain cancer right after high school. He was like the first person to die. And you know what? Every time I saw them in the hallway for the rest of school, you know, that was seventh grade. So I went to school with them through my senior year. Every single time that I saw them in the hallway, we would always nod to each other. And I think in large part, it was because of that fun day at the mall. It was like, oh, we had that, we had that really fun day just wandering around the mall feeling like we were old enough to do that. But we never did it again. <laughs> but what made me think about that is the guy, Evan, I don't know what he's up to. But uh, he and I had gym class together. And we were in gym class. And there was an announcement. I think our teacher or somebody told us, we just bombed Iraq. This is 1998 or 1999. It was before the Iraq war. But it was when that kind of thing would just happen. You know, America will just bomb Iraq in 1998 or 99. We're not at war with them. Like, think about if someone did that to us. Think about if another country just one day just launched missiles at a target in our country. Think about the reaction to that. But the way the American empire works is like, oh, hey, yeah, we hate Saddam Hussein in Iraq. So even though we're not in open warfare to them, we're years away from the Iraq war. We're just going to bomb them today. And when me and this guy found that out... We high-fived. We were like, yes, we bombed Iraq. And then we got out of PE and we ran into my buddy Nick, who I always talk about, you know, my best buddy Nick. And we both ran up to him. We were giddy. And we went, dude, we just bombed Iraq. We just bombed Iraq. And you know what he did? He, he put his hand up really high and he gave us a huge high-five. And here's the thing. We were all kind of rebellious. Like the guy Evan... Like I said, I don't know what became of him, but I remember in high school, he was, he was becoming kind of earthy. I don't know that he ever became a full-on hippie, but as far as my hometown went, he was becoming kind of an earthy guy. Kind of, he becoming kind of an earthy guy. And my buddy Nick, you know, a skateboarder, you know, we were rebellious. But we had this instant pride that our country had attacked another country for reasons we couldn't even comprehend. Saddam's a bad guy, I guess. And that's a form of that collective psychosis. The fact that as 12 or 13-year-old boys, we would just not only just accept that information, but be excited about it and actually high-five each other. I feel no shame or embarrassment about that. You know, I'm very anti-war. I'm very against warfare of any kind. But I feel no shame thinking back. I was young and I, in, 
we were just molded that way. We were taught to do that. I mean, I wouldn't even say taught. It's just kind of the tracks were laid down and we were going, you know, we were rolling along those tracks. But, uh, you know, by 9-11, that was, 9-11 is when I, I think that was my first true experience with a sudden collective psychosis. And I pushed back on it. Even though I didn't like what happened, I do remember thinking, I mean, I mean, you can connect these things too. Like, I mean, you think about the American empire continually meddling in the Middle East, which bin Laden, not to be confused with bin Biden, you know, bin Laden said that was one of the reasons that was one of his motivations is that the U.S. is continually meddling in the Middle East. If not our direct participation, we fund and train. and I mean, we, we funded and trained them at a certain point in time. And I understood that in that moment. The day 9-11 happened, I was on this forum. It was like the first internet forum I was ever on. I was 15 years old, and I remember I posted, everyone was really upset, and it, what's interesting is it was, it was a counterculture kind of forum. It was very weird and different sort of people, but everybody was like, oh my God, America's under attack. Everybody was just like, oh my God, I can't believe these assholes attacked us, and I posted, fuck America. I said those exact words, fuck America. I didn't actually mean that, but what I meant was, And I think I said this. I was like, we deserve this. What we do, you know, the motivation to do this is in large part because of our conduct. And so seeing everybody kind of get into this psychosis, which, you know, it did last and it led to people supporting the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq. There were a lot of people who, who there were a lot of people who were actually Democrats who began to support George W. Bush. The same sort of people who hated him a few months earlier actually fell in line behind him because they were reacting so heavily to 9-11. And I knew at the time, like, something weird is going on, but it didn't feel like it lasted that long. And it didn't shift to something else. Like, people reacted to 9-11, and the implications of that lasted for many, many years. I mean, the war in Afghani, the stand of Afghani just ended. Just ended. That's insane. That's my entire adult life. The fact that that was going on before I was an adult, actually. The fact that the the war in the stand of Afghani started when I was like 15 or 16. And that it just ended when I'm 36 years old. So 20 years. More than my entire adult life, half my life, more than half my life. Pretty insane. So the implications, you know, lasted for a long time. But I don't remember the the feeling of a collective psychosis lasting for very long. And I don't remember it shifting to a different topic. And that gets into what I want to talk about here, which is The last couple years we've seen where the collective psychosis bonds to its current host and it doesn't seem to matter 
what the issue is. It will provoke a hysterical emotional reaction and individual people act like they've always been invested in whatever the current issue is. They will act like this is something that has been vital to their consciousness forever. And they'll let go of whatever the previous psychosis was. Because I would understand if, you know, I, I would understand if Coronavi was the only one. I'm critical of the way Coronavi was handled, the way people have behaved. But if that was it, it would be a different issue. I would understand it. I would say, okay, people were scared to death by an indivi- <laughs> indivisible, I'm going to do the Pledge of Allegiance, by an, an invisible disease that they were initially telling us could get in through our ears and our eyeballs. I'm not kidding. They initially, to- they initially told us that it could get in through our ears, our eyeballs, and everything we touched with our hands. They told us to wash our groceries before using them. I read an article two years ago that said, leave your groceries in the garage overnight to decontaminate them. I saw two people. Not everybody, but I saw two people wearing earmuffs at the grocery store during the first phase of Coronavi because they told people it could crawl in through your ears like a freaking worm. So I understand why people freaked out. I understand why people latched onto masks. And as I've said before, I'm pretty indifferent toward masks. I have issues with some of the... There are some arguments about masks that fall apart about their efficacy, and uh, I don't like the way people celebrate new rules and become hall monitors. I don't like what rules do to people, regardless of what the rule is. Because, you know, the reason why hall monitor is even kind of a cliche joke, like where that reference comes from, is that, you know, there's a rule in elementary schools that you can't run in the halls because it's apparently dangerous or something. It's unruly and dangerous. So you can't run. And there are certain kids who will tell on you for running. And it's the same mindset as people policing each other over masks. You know, even if they think they're doing the right thing, the safe thing, there's certain people who, when a new rule is introduced, it doesn't seem to matter what it is, they will embrace that new rule. And so I have issues with masks on those grounds, but in terms of the actual just having to wear a mask, I decided early on that it was a minor inconvenience for me. It makes life a little more surreal to live in a period where everybody was wearing masks. There's something, when you take away what that means, there's something kind of incredible about it, living in an era where everybody is wearing masks all the time. And they're buying custom masks. I mean, I can appreciate the surreal absurdity of that. But I understand it too. I understand why people doubled down on that. Even though I hate the way people have talked about the VAC, I understand everything that goes along with coronavirus. I don't like the psychosis that became attached to it. I expected there to be a psychosis though, so that wasn't a surprise. I don't like the psychosis, 
But if it, if it was only coronavi, that would be a totally different issue because I understand the level of fear, the level of confusion and uncertainty. And those are the elements that create psychosis. Those are the elements that cause people's brains to break down. But it hasn't just been coronavi. We've seen where the collective psychosis switches gears and changes topics very suddenly and quickly. And it's happened over and over again over the last two years. Again, though, it didn't start two years ago, but we've seen an escalation for obvious reasons. And the first indication of that was the utter moral panic of summer 2020. I won't, I won't go into all the details of that. But that was when I knew something far greater was going on than just people being scared about a disease. That was when I knew that we live in very unstable times. And the hysteria surrounding that and the level of just, uh, I mean, the, collect- the way the collective psychosis manifested in the form of summer 2020 is something I will never forget. And I think that is the most significant period out of all this. You can't convince me otherwise. That was the most significant moral panic. And we're still seeing echoes of it. But you can see where people have shift gears. People were deeply invested in it. So deeply emotionally invested in the events of summer 2020. But look how it, they just sort of switched gears. That energy then was focused on Trump's fell January 666, the VAC. So the collective psychosis is the common element in all these events and situations I'm describing. But it shifts focus. And whatever it's focused on becomes, it, it dominates everybody's thinking it leads to this moral panic this moral righteousness this signaling this decoration you decorate yourselves accordingly you use certain emojis 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 you use certain emojis And we can see where that did play a role in coronavirus, still does, where, you know, wearing a mask wasn't just something practical you do, but it's a way of communicating to other people that you're doing the right thing. But then that's also the BLM sign. That's the black power fist emoji, emoji. That's, uh, you know, whatever it is, people need to decorate themselves to signal where they stand and uh, we've seen now where it's shifted to Russia and Ukraine where people are adorning themselves with the Ukrainian flag you know I mentioned seeing a guy who had a little Ukrainian flag on his car antenna last week and how I can guarantee you he ordered that on Amazon Prime next day shipping And I've seen these images of protests where you have naked women who have painted their entire bodies with the Ukrainian flag 
It might as well be BLM to them. And some of these statements about gas. Celebrities, a lot of celebrities. And the same celebrities who are making similar comments about coronavirus, similar comments about BLM, similar comments about Trumpsfeld. They're now saying, like, we can afford to pay more for gas to have a clear conscience. People are doing this mass signaling about Russia and Ukraine. And it's the same type of people, if not the same exact people. And a good example of the moral panic is, I mean, I saw today, I mean, this is so insane. I mean, yeah, we saw the sort of freedom fries mentality, the Salisbury steak mentality, where people were changing things to not use the word Russian. And they were dumping out Russian vodka. Russian restaurants were being vandalized in America. But that's not enough. It escalates from there. And I saw today that some Philharmonic orchestra canceled its performances of Tchaikovsky. And they said, now is not the time for this. Now is not the right time for this. So people don't feel that you can acknowledge anything Russian. Tchaikovsky's a classical composer. I mean, I hate to even dignify that with a rational response because it's so irrational. Tchaikovsky is a classical composer. He existed in a completely different era under a different government. He's as much a part of the world's culture He's as much a part of international cultural history as he is some kind of representative of Russia today. To cancel Tchaikovsky pieces because it's inappropriate based on what's going on in Eastern Europe is completely insane and unhinged. It is the product of a... the insta- It's a product of the instability and confusion found in a collective psychosis. Another one I saw was, there's a professor who teaches Russian literature, and naturally his expertise is in Dostoevsky. And the university or college that he worked for told him, you need to include some Ukrainian literature literature in that. And he said, I don't know anything about Ukrainian literature. I'm a professor of of Russian literature, you know, with an expertise in Dostoevsky. But they demanded that he balance it out with Ukrainian literature. Because apparently, like Tchaikovsky, Dostoevsky is somehow representative of Vladimir Putin. You can't coexist with that way of thinking. We can't live in a society that allows that form of thinking on an institutional level. To blame creative people from history who happen to be Russian, to demonize their work as some sort of signal against the actions of the current Russian government. I mean, just it's truly 
beyond me. It's beyond me in every possible way. But it's very similar to what's been taking place the last couple years. And it's interesting that it's pivoted away from coronavirus so quickly. You know, a month ago, huge groups of people, the news, they were going after Jerogan for not falling in line with the coronavirus narrative. And they were digging up, digging up any dirt they could find on him. They pivoted away from coronavirus so quickly as if it disappeared entirely. Just like they pivoted away from coronavirus for summer 2020. Forgot about coronavirus temporarily. And then phased out of summer 2020 into the 2020 election. And then shifted gears to VAC, to the VAC. And then now they've shifted onto this war. But their behavior is the same. There's a lot of signaling. There's a, the reactions are hysterical. They're emotional. They're irrational. And I've never seen that in my lifetime. I've never seen... I, I've seen collective psychosis, 9-11 being the example I used... I've never seen collective psychosis remain this ever-present, but shift focuses, and each thing it focuses on, it deeply invests itself in. And the people who it's infected, it, it takes on every part of their being. Everything they do corresponds to that thing. And I wonder, when is that going to stop? When is that behavior going to stop? Because you hear about these fervors. You hear about things in history like this happening. But you tend to see them framed around one particular event. I'm wondering if there are examples of this where it shifts topics. And something to remember is even though it shifts focus... And whatever it's currently focused on is the most important thing. And all of the signaling is directed toward that thing. All of the hysteria, all of the moral panic is focused on that one topic at hand. It's not like there's any epiphany or realization about the last topic. They kind of forget about it. You know, as I mentioned before, there's this continual process that's been going on since at least 2015, where people's memory just, they just forget. There's a lot of people who don't remember what summer 2020 was even like. I'm never going to forget that. But there's this forgetfulness. And it's not like anybody comes to some sort of new rational conclusion or has some sort of epiphany about that thing they were so deeply invested in. They just sort of phase it out and drop it. But it's important to remember that it could come back at any time. Like we've seen that with coronavirus, where it shifted from mass hysteria about coronavirus to mass hysteria about race, to mass hysteria about the election and Trumpsfeld and January 666. 
Then it shifted back to Coronavine. It's not like those people were like, oh, I'm not worried about Coronavine anymore. I'm not worried about the, the pandemonium pandemic. Their views are still essentially the same. It's like, it's like herpes or something. It's dormant. Like there are no visible warts for a while. But it doesn't mean the person isn't still infected by that same disease. And then something causes it to flare up again. And it could flare up in the same way about the same thing. Or it could flare up about something else. And uh, that's what makes me... That's what makes me the most concerned. It's like people's brains have been so broken down. Their brains have been kneaded and massaged to this point where they don't seem to have any self-control or self-discipline. It is simply react, react, react. Shift the hysteria, but the, the hysteria never actually goes away. It just changes its focus. And whatever its current focus is, seems like it's always been the most important thing in the world to that person. Not that these things aren't important and don't deserve consideration, but it becomes this tunnel vision for one thing. And not just one topic, but one way of viewing that topic. Russia is bad, so we're going to encourage a despicable level of xenophobia, not just toward the Russian people of today, not just toward the Russian government. We're going to apply it to everything Russia has ever produced, including Tchaikovsky, vodka, Dostoevsky. It doesn't seem to matter what it is if it has the word Russia in it somewhere, literally, because they're changing restaurant menus. They're changing the names of white Russian to white Ukrainian. It's, it's something. Wow, it is something to, to witness that. And you see that it's always met with a desire to control and change things. Just like summer, summer 2020 led to all of these changes changing words. Oh, master bedroom refers to slave master, even though it doesn't. It leads to this revisionism, this reverse etymology. Oh, everything that has ever used the word black to mean dark or negative was in reference to black people and a hatred toward black people. There's this revisionism and this reverse etymology that took place with that. I mean, I mentioned a couple months ago how Disney changed the name of Boba Fett's ship from Slave One because apparently any reference to slavery, even in a fictional universe, is too much for us to handle. And that's what's taking place with Russia right now. Change the word Russian. No Russian music. No Russian literature. Cut off Facebook, Netflix, PayPal from Russian people. Just bizarre. Change everything. Because that's a common theme in all this too. The collective psychosis demands the ability to control everything. But it only cares about what's in its field of vision. 
Right now, Russia and Ukraine are in its field of vision, so it desires to control anything that relates to those two countries. Where does this go, though, is what I wonder. We've seen over the last two years that it will affix itself to anything and everything. But where does that go? When does that stop? 9-11 kind of just phased out. 9-11 just sort of, you know, melted into time. It was still important. It was still significant. But that reaction and that response, from what I can remember, maybe somebody older felt differently. Maybe they, maybe they had a different vantage point. But I don't remember that getting... You know, I don't remember that focus shifting to something else. I think people did kind of normalize within a relatively short amount of time, within a couple of years, within a year or two. I think that people's view started to kind of normalize. And we did see some psychotic, collectively psychotic responses to other things after that. Like we saw where evangelicals in particular... You know, they got focused on, like, Terry Schiavo, is that her name? But there's there's always conflict. Like, like some people always have their passions. I think right now it's the scale, and I think it's the, the degree that it impacts everything and everyone. And I made it a point, you know, the first couple of weeks of this Russian thing, I was just sort of looking at it peripherally. But in the last two days, I would say, I've made it a point to read what people are saying about it, and it is psychotic. It seems to get worse. I mean, seeing the news today that they canceled a Tchaikovsky performance because it was viewed as insensitive to what's happening in Eastern Europe, that's a good example that it's only getting worse. But it'll shift to something else. And that's what I'm getting at here is when does it end? When does that, when does it normalize? That's what I'm wondering here. Because other times that I felt like there's a similar vibe in the air, it doesn't last this long and it doesn't seem to bond with every topic that hits the news like it has been. And I think part of that is the level of information people have. I think this is a product of the internet. I think this is a product of social media or this is the information age. This is the fact that people are just consuming new information all day, every day. And when they don't have new information, they're just refreshing pages and rereading things. I think that's a big part of this is that people's brains are caught in that loop. I think that's feeding all this. And I haven't looked at social media or myself. Like I'll, I'll check Twitter just to see, because that's where I get, that's where I hear about some of, the, some of what's going on in the world. That's, you know, I'm not connected to anybody I know on there. I don't use it to connect to anybody anyway. I look at it just to kind of get, to kind of test the temperature of the day. But I haven't looked at my personal social media or my Facebook or my uh, my Instagram in probably a month and a half. I haven't, I haven't even looked at it. I don't say that. I, I don't say that with anything in mind. 
I just realized, you know, I think this kind of ran its course. I have no desire to look at that. It seems like a lot. And one of the reasons, though, I mean, I think one of the reasons why it ran its course was seeing the way collective psychosis plays out on there, seeing the way people you know react. Summer 2020 played a big role in that. Instagram in particular, I think Facebook too, but Instagram in particular really showed me during that period the impact that collective psychosis was having on my peers, people I know. And it didn't make me hate them. It didn't make me mad at them. But it made me not want to look at it. And I think it's, you know, we've been doing that now for 15 years. We've been in this world of social media now for 15 years. Over 10 years of constant use, constant connectivity. It got boring. I don't, I'm not even one of these people who's going to go down the laundry list of criticisms of it. I've defended it on here. I like that you can be connected to a lot of different people you've known or don't know through social media. Or I have as many good things to say about it as bad things, maybe even more good things. But it's become boring and it's become a, a weird window into the, the strange mutations that the human brain takes on, especially the collective human brain. And as a result, I don't really want to see that right now. Don't really want to see that right now. I don't need to know who is posting pro-Ukrainian Instagram stories. I don't need to know who hates Putin right now. Hopefully people aren't doing any of that. Hopefully people aren't signaling, but I've seen the role that signaling has played with those platforms. And it just, rather than look at it and roll my eyes or have to decide whether or not to react, I just say, I'm not even going to look at it. And it's not even much of a decision. You know, I'm not somebody who feels the need to delete that stuff because I, was, I talked to a friend about a, a few weeks ago and he deleted all of his a few years ago, a couple of years ago. And I, he was asking me, he, you know, because the people who do that, they still ask you questions about what people are up to. They're still curious. He asked me, like, oh, have you, have you seen anything about so-and-so, like an old friend of ours? And I was like, you know, I haven't even looked at it in a month. And he was like, oh, did you delete it? And I was like, no, because there's a strong need to make a statement and delete that stuff. And I totally get it. Even from a data collection point of view, I understand not wanting to be on there. But I haven't felt the need to delete anything. I like that somebody can still contact me through there if that's the only channel they have. I have no desire to make a statement or quit. I just don't look at it. I don't even think about it. And I think uh, that's the only way to move forward at this point. Hopefully there will come a time where that stuff is relevant again. But how much can you say? How much can you see? And in times like this, is it even really worth it? But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't have too much more to add on this. I'm just waiting and seeing how it all goes. Because we're going to see the impact it has economically. We've already seen the massive jump in gas prices. You know, we've already seen the effect that's had. And that leads to tension. I mean, I was—I I got gas last night. 
late last night, I was like, well, you know, I, I was going to get gas a week ago. A week ago, I filled up my tank like, I know gas, oh, you, you want to talk about gas? It's, it's what everybody's talking about. Everybody wants to talk about their gas. But yeah, a week ago, I had to go run some errands and I needed gas. And I was like, I'm just going to fill it up a quarter tank. I'm waiting for some money. I think I'll just fill it up a quarter of a tank. Wish I would have filled the whole thing up last week. Because I filled it up last night and it's more than I've ever paid for gas. Couldn't believe how much it cost me. And I think pretty soon I'm going to look back on last night and say, I can't believe how cheap it was. I can't believe how cheap that was. Oh my God, it's relative. The relativity of gas prices. But when I was filling up my tank last night, there was a car who was getting gas too. And then they parked, they kind of were blocking me in. They pulled out and then they stopped in the middle of the gas station parking lot. And then the guy jumped out of the car. It was a couple. The guy jumped out of the car and he was standing in front of the car and the passenger or the the driver's side door opened and i heard his girlfriend scream get in the fucking car now get in the fucking car now i was like oh shit and i couldn't tell what he was doing he was like opening up the back doors the the back side doors and he was like reaching in there and then he would get and he would just stand in front of the car. And obviously something was going on if she screamed at him like that. Get in the fucking car now. And I was like, would that have happened if they hadn't just paid $70 to fill up their sedan? Would they have gotten in that fight? Maybe, maybe not. But it, you know, adds to the tension. It adds to the tension. And... uh that's why you need self-control. That's why you can't let yourself react. You cannot let yourself react. You can criticize. You can do what I'm doing here. You know, you can talk about things. You can have opinions. But reacting, giving in to the hysteria, you got to avoid doing that. I mean, yesterday I went to the grocery store. I was at the yogurt, what we call the yogurt patch. It's where the yogurt grows bunch of yogurts grow there and this older man like well put together he wasn't senile his hair was done nicely he was just like a a clean well-dressed older man he like beelined over to my exact spot at the yogurt patch and he just started reaching past me reaching over me it was as if I wasn't there it was honestly the rudest that anybody's been to me in a very long time And I just sort of stopped, and he kept doing it. And I was like, I can't believe this. My space hasn't been invaded like this in a long time. And I almost said something. I could feel the roots of that growing up. I could feel the roots, like, like winding their way. I could feel the ivy starting to, like, you know, wrap its way around my insides and start to come out my mouth in the form of, excuse me? Excuse me? Oh my, oh my God. But I just, I, I took a step back and I just looked at him and, and he was, he never even acknowledged my presence. And he was checking every single, the date on every single yogurt. And, you know, I buy a lot of yogurt. And the thing is, you can look at like two yogurts to get an idea of what the general date is. And then you don't really need to examine each and every one. And I have to say too, the dates on yogurts do a lot to me. 
The dates on yogurts freak me out. Cause I'll be going, I'll I'll be buying yogurt, and sometimes you'll you'll come across a batch of yogurt that's like it expires way in the future. It's March eighth, and it says that it expires like like April fourteenth. And when I see that, I immediately am like, oh my god, time is moving too fast. Oh my god, time is moving too fast. It's almost April. Oh my god, this month's almost over. So when the date on the yogurt is too far in the future, even though that's a good thing. That means that yogurt's going to last if you buy it. There's no pressure to eat it too quickly. If I see that the date is in April and it's only early March, I'm like, oh my God, time's going too fast. It's going to be April tomorrow. There's like a sweet spot of yogurt dates where like you don't want to see that it expires tomorrow because you're like, oh my God, I have to eat that today. But then if you see that it's way in the future, you're like, oh no, time's moving too fast. So it's like you want, for me, the ideal yogurt expiration date is like two weeks from now. That way it's like, it doesn't feel like it's way in the future and it's like warning me that the future is weighing down, that it's coming down the line. So it's like two weeks means like, I don't have to rush and eat this tomorrow, but tomorrow isn't coming too quick either. But this old guy, he was going through this, and I, I almost said something. I could feel myself. Like it, it almost came out of my mouth. But I ended up just holding back, you know, having that discipline to just watch him. And then I was like, you know what? I'm just going to reach over him. And to be fair, he didn't give a shit. You got to love that. He was extremely rude. He invaded my space, reached past me, like literally reached past me. But you know what? He didn't give a shit that I did it back to him. So he doesn't have double standards. He might be a rude you know, he might be a rude yogurt connoisseur, but it's like he didn't have any concern about me being rude back to him. So at least he doesn't have double standards. You know, that's the silver lining in this. Cuz if you're going to be rude, you know, at least, you know, it's it's kind of like, you know, when I went to Asia, it's true that people like crowd into the subway. All of that's true. You go to these crowded subway platforms and people just like force their way in. But the nice thing about that is they don't care if you do that to them. It's kind of jarring because you're like, oh my God. People would never do this where I live. But they don't care if you do it back to them because it's normal there. That's kind of what it was like with this old guy. It was just like, oh yeah, he doesn't care if I do it back to him. But what's funny is, you know, I've talked about that before, like the human need for conspiracy And there was no reason why this old man was rude to me in particular. He just wanted yogurt and didn't give a shit who was already looking at it. But if I were not me, like if I were a woman, I very well might come up with some conspiracy theory where it's like, oh, clearly that entitled old man, that patriarchal old man, he saw that a young woman was looking at the yogurt and he thought that he gets dibs. He did that to me because I'm a, a young woman. Or if I was black. Oh, he saw that a black person was shopping for yogurt and he thought, I'm an entitled old white man, an old white man, so I'm just going to reach over the black man. You know, it's very easy to come up with conspiracy theories, but in my situation, it's like there's nothing I could even come up with. It reminds me of, I mean, speaking of summer 2020, people were really, when that collective psychosis was in full force, people were really looking for new angles because everyone wants a jewel. 
everyone wants to have their own take or their own angle that makes people go, you know, I never thought of that. That's that's very interesting. Oh, good for you. Everyone wants to have their own thing to offer. And a friend of mine during summer 2020, a personal friend of mine, somebody whose intelligence I respect, which I always point that out because it just shows you the the gap that can sometimes exist between people who otherwise respect each other and are otherwise intelligent. Because this friend of mine... A personal friend of mine posted this infographic that was all about how, why you shouldn't crowd, like if you're in line at the grocery store checking out, like why you shouldn't crowd a black woman who's in front of you in line, like why you shouldn't act impatient and pressure a black woman in front of you in line to move faster through the checkout. And I read that and I thought, I don't disagree with this. I don't disagree with the idea. Because you shouldn't do that to anybody. You shouldn't get in line behind anybody at the grocery store and crowd them. Or act rude. Or rush them. Like we all know how that feels when somebody's behind you in line and they're acting really impatient. It sucks for everybody. It was the specificity The specificity of saying, don't crowd or act impatient behind a black woman in line. It was tailored for the summer 2020 collective psychosis, the hysteria, because that's just a general rule for anybody. And people don't generally do that to people just because of their race or their identity. Even people who, you know, it's just, I mean, it's like nobody tailgates you because of who you are. Tailgaters don't single you out because of what you look like. Rude people are generally going to be rude. Yeah, there are people who are bigoted and prejudiced. But in general, like somebody who's going to be rude or impatient is going to be that way no matter what. They'll do it to an old lady who's counting out her change. She barely made it to the store. She's 90 years old. It's amazing that she can even shop for herself. And there are people who will crowd her in line and act impatient. They'll do it to anybody for any reason. So it was the level of specificity. It's no different to me than like banning Tchaikovsky because the Russians are at war with somebody. It's the same sort of thinking. It's, it's that hysteria. And, uh, oops, dropping my vape. Dropping the vape. But uh, anyway, and that's a good reason why I don't want to look at social media, too, because you see things like that, especially when something like this is going on. It's like, here's a person that I respect, who I find very intelligent and cool, and that's their angle. I don't have to agree with it. It doesn't make me dislike them. It doesn't make me change my fundamental opinion of them, but it's something I don't really need to see. I don't need to see that that's going on in your brain. I don't need to see that that's your angle, because it is an angle. But with this guy in the store yesterday, it was like, it's been years since somebody has been that openly rude to me. But there was no conspiracy theory I could come up with as to why. He wasn't invading my space because there was anything about me that he was prejudiced against. And who knows how all this shit is is contributing to to people's thinking. You know, two years ago, I talked about a guy accosting me in a store 
for having too many items in the express line. It was because of yogurt, actually. So this, that was a yogurt story, too. Where I think of yogurt as like one item. I mean, it's one thing if you're buying like 20 yogurts, but if, I have, if I'm in the express line, like the 25-item express line, and I have 30 items because five of them are yogurt, I don't really think that is breaking the rules. Like you've seen the way cashiers ring up yogurt. They're like jugglers. They're just like, doot, 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 doot. It takes them five seconds to ring up five yogurts. I timed it. So this guy behind me in line at the start of Coronavi lockdown, accosting me, he's like, in the amount of time that, that it took behind you, I, I could have been in and out of here and I'm at risk. And I got shamed for wearing a mask. That was before masks were common and it was when they were telling you not to wear them. And the dude was upset. He's like, you have a mask and you're more protected. I don't have a mask and you're buying more items than you're supposed to buy. And I remember that mood at the time. I remember like going shopping at that time and it was tense and weird. So like seeing this couple fight in the gas station parking lot right after they fill up their tank with like $70, a $70 purchase. Some old man invading my space in the store while this shit's going on. This, this stuff, I'm not saying there's correlation, but there's tension in the air. And that's something to always be wary of. Because what the last couple of years have shown is that I really don't trust people. And that goes against my beliefs. You know, I've mentioned my beliefs on here that, you know, over the last number of years, I've taken an attitude of trying to trust people more. Rather than being completely cynical, not that I trust people in a way that makes me susceptible to manipulation. You know, if someone's trying to get something out of me or manipulate me, I pay close fucking attention. But when it comes to just a general level of trust, I feel that I benefit from basically trusting people. And in many cases, the bullshit cancels itself out. But I have to say, the last couple of years have been a real test. Because I don't trust people's emotions. I don't, I don't trust their mental stability. And I think we have good reason, you know, I think I have good reason to feel that way, but I can't give in to it. I can't get cynical about it. I can complain about it. I can talk about it, but I can't let myself get cynical about people to that level. Because if I do that, there's a decent chance I'm going to start acting like them. There's a decent chance I'm going to start playing the same game they're playing. I might be on the opposite side of the canyon screaming at them. But I'll be playing the same game, and I don't want to do that. I refuse to do that. It's why, even though I've had skepticism about coronavirus since it started, a healthy level of skepticism, I don't trust everything the authorities say. I don't pretend to know either. I don't. Pre- I, it's why I, I don't pretend to know that it's a hoax or know that they're lying about this and not this. I don't pretend to know anything. Because I don't want to play the same game from the opposite side of the field. That's not what I want to do. You know, just like it would be very easy right now when you see the, the sort of attitude people have about U- Ukraine. 
it'd be very easy to just be pro-Russia. It'd be very easy to kind of take this contrarian response and be like, yeah, well, you know what? I actually like Vladimir Putin. I actually like Vladimir Putin. I actually like the fact that Russia invaded a country and is hurting people. It'd be very easy to go there with it on a reactionary level. That's not how I feel at all, though. And doing that is simply playing the same game they're playing. So you can't do that. And you have to be able to catch these things at the roots. It's not wrong to feel something. Like that guy who invaded my space yesterday. It's not wrong to feel a little bit outraged at that. And, and consider whether or not to say something. But I was like, if I say something, this is going to be silly. And I'm going to get less enjoyment out of it. Because I actually got enjoyment out of it. Like when I took a step back and watched this animal, this elderly animal, examining all the yogurts. No concern for anybody else's well-being or space. I actually thought it was really funny. And it wouldn't have been funny if I called him out and got in a fight in the store. And so you have to be able to catch yourself. You have to have discipline. Discipline is what keeps you from playing these games. Because that would have turned into a game. And the game would have sucked. The game where I confront a guy in the yogurt patch. That game would have sucked. And, and now I would be dealing with the repercussions of that. The psychic repercussions of confrontation. So it's a dang good thing that I didn't do that. And I think that also helps you not get sucked into these larger issues. I think having that discipline helps you from getting sucked into whatever the current topic of the day is. Yeah, I look at it. I pay attention. I have my own opinions and responses. I think about it. It's hard not to think about it. But I have to have some discipline about it, too. I have to catch myself. It's okay to feel the roots of a reaction. But you don't want to let that reaction take you over. Because when the reaction takes you over, you become highly susceptible to one side of a collective psychosis or the other. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can